Well, after the last episode, I suppose this was a nice breather. Fun fact, as I've said before, I tend to do these back to back to back. You know, just sitting here and cramming out episodes as fast as I can. And, uh, so yeah, and from my perspective, it's been probably about 50 minutes since I, since I finished recording the previous rumination. So, this was a nice breather. <clears throat> it's a shame I have so little to talk about. Um, Cecily Adams is the woman who does the acting for Moogie, that is to say Ishka, in this episode and every episode afterwards. Now, I mean no offense to the actress whatsoever, but I think she's the worst actress in the history. No, I, what, I, what I find strange is that from this point onwards, Ishka is a lot less pleasant. Like, she had some tidbits, but in this episode, she's actually kind of a bad person. And in future episodes, she will absolutely be a bad person. I I don't know if that's due to the actress or the directing or what. Now, René Bergenois was the one who did the directing for this one. And he was going across cross streams with what Ira Stephen Bear wanted. So maybe that's part of the problem and it just kind of got solidified by this. I don't know. We'll see how she shows up in the future. I do want to mention, though, uh, the Vol problem. Why don't they just have a Federation ship scan the station for whole life forms and beam them into space or something? Like, you have those kind of sensors, right? I mean, I could buy the DS9 station itself not having that kind of sensors, but surely a passing Excelsior can, or the Defiant. Anyways. <clears throat> so there's two halves of this episode. One is two people trying to get together, and the other is two people trying to be broken apart. Both end up together. Ferengi love songs. Yay. Life is filled with love and marriage. Because marriage is what brings us to... I'll, I'll stop. I'll stop. <clears throat> uh, where do I start? Let's start with the Ram and Lita bit. It's kind of strange. <sighs> seeing those two going after each other in the way that they do. But what I find even stranger is that the two obviously... Yeah, well, okay. Lita and Rom have a weird chemistry together, the actress and the actor. It's not bad, but it's in no way feels even remotely romantic. Like, there's no gelling there, at least not in my opinion. But they still play off each other well enough that it usually works. What I find really strange, though, is that both of them sell the relationship more for me when they're not together on camera. There's this really great little personal bit where Rom's like, yeah, I, have you ever had Latin? It's so smooth and it's perfect to touch and I would give anything to hold her in my arms again. Like, the way he says that sells it, right? And on her side, on Chase Masterson's side, when she, there's this great bit where she's walking uh, on the upper catwalk of the promenade talking to Kira and she's like, no, I hate him, I hate him, I hate him. And Kira's like, no, you don't, no, you don't, no, you don't. She's like, haven't you been listening to me? Yes, I know you love him and you want him back. And she just, like, Lita just has this really quiet, minor <sighs> breakdown. I can't even do it. She does a great job of it. So once again, selling the relationship off camera. What I find really funny is their point of contention actually makes a lot of sense. But if we're being realistic, probably would have been brought up a long time ago long before marriage came into the thing. Now, this is actually kind of entering controversial topics here, so all I'm going to say is 
I find it weird because Rom's point is moderately valid, but taken to an extreme, which is the problem. Whereas she has no real point other than the refusal of trust. Let me explain this. In real life, we actually do have, I can't remember the proper term, but it's like a contract, you're right. And it says, if, you know, once we get married, this, and it's a binding agreement that you can take to court. So when the, you know, when the divorce happens, which is a legal matter, by the way, then you can go ahead and point to the contract and say, here, this is how it happens. Now, speaking as an economist, that makes perfect sense. You're preparing for the worst. Um, but you can kind of see why, hey, just in case we go really bad and you turn out to be some horrible human being, uh, I want some legal protection from you screwing me over. Doesn't really sound all that great when, you, when you're hearing it from someone you, who claims to love you, right? So that's basically her side of the argument. He is effectively saying, I don't trust you. And so that's kind of a deal breaker. Now the answer is obvious to me. Just don't get married. Just stay together. What? Marriage is a legal thing. Two people who actually love each other and want to be together for the rest of their lives, you don't need a piece of paper to do that. Anyways... <clears throat> Then, of course, we have... You could tell Rom hasn't been in a real relationship before. We've actually uh, heard references to his previous wife a couple of times. You have Nog's mother, and how she's horrible. And if I'm not mistaken, she never shows up. I'm pretty sure she never does, because she was horrible. <laughs> but Lita... How do I phrase this? Lita, she has a nice bit at the end. Rom decides to give away all his money. In fact, you can kind of see how Rom is just twisting himself into knots here because he doesn't know if he can trust her, but he's going to offer her half of all of his life savings in order to show that he does trust her, but still insists she signed the contract, which means that she won't own it, and he doesn't even realize that. He's just like, uh, oh, right. <sighs> now what? And, of course, he still hasn't resolved the trust thing. He hasn't. In fact, the way he resolves the trust thing is by giving away the money. That's a bit of a lateral move, although I could see why an engineer would think that way. Because his solution is, well, I'll just remove the temptation. Now she can't be after me for my money because there's no money left. Ergo, if she still wants to be with me, she wants to actually be with me. Now, that's actually surprisingly subtle, and the episode never calls it out, but it means he still doesn't know if he trusts her until he confronts her at the end of the episode. Once he informs her, yeah, I'm broke, and she still wants to be with him, he now knows he can trust her. Cute, right? And, of course, she's the pragmatist who points out, yeah, I still need my salary, because you're broke, honey, and you work for Federation. They don't pay you. So, uh, yeah. <clears throat> Anyways, nice little tidbit. Meanwhile, on the other side... We have the Grand Nagus Zek and Ishka. <sighs> I actually don't have much to say about that side of the episode, even though it's the main thrust of the episode. Although, I do want to say that a lot of the theories I've been postulating on throughout this show are effectively confirmed in this. There's this great line, and I wrote it down here. A Nagus has to be better than that. In short... Brunt is willing to throw the Ferengi economy into chaos to seize power. That's a very Ferengi thing. 
but a Nagus has to be better. And I've theorized for years that there's two types of Ferengi, basically. The typical Ferengi, which is what we usually see on camera, and the Ferengi who have actual, real business sense, who keep the whole thing running. And Zek has pretty consistently been in the latter category. He consistently outmaneuvers and outplays everyone around him. In fact, the only reason he doesn't do that in this episode is because of the memory loss problem. And even then, he's still thinking a few steps ahead of everyone else. He's just losing his memory. Fortunately, the Vulcans will probably be able to help him out, so that's nice. We do see him in the future. Spoiler alert. Brunt, what I like about Brunt is he's... Well, first of all, someone like Brunt is exactly why the Ferengi Alliance probably should have self-destructed decades or centuries ago, because really all it takes is one ambitious Ferengi who is willing to not be better to try and seize power and successfully outplay the betters in order to throw the whole thing into a mess. The only way this could actually work elsewise is if, well, as I postulate, someone more than the Nagus is actually also better than that. In short, imagine for a moment if Brunt had succeeded. Ha <laughs> ha! And then he dies. Or is removed from power. Or is removed from significance. Because the Ferengi who are actually running things, who actually have brains, notice that he is not amongst them. He's not one of them. So they deal with him appropriately. Anyways... <clears throat> I'm looking at my notes. I just have so little time. Brunt mentions how much he's disgusted by Ishka, even though it was all just a power grab. I'd like to think that wasn't a lie. It wasn't an act, so to speak. That instead, he really was disgusted by Ishka and what she might represent for the Ferengi culture. This is actually something that's come up before for Brunt. So the idea of him trying, you know, legitimately pouring some of that actual vitriol into his performance, I could buy that. There's this really great scene, and it's the last thing I have to talk about. Sorry, I just keep glancing at my notes. I have so little to talk about, I told you. There's this really great scene where Cork basically begs the, the Nagus, please give me my license back. And Zek says no. And Zek just, just slams the iron down there. Contracts are the very basis of Ferengi society. You violated a contract. What you did is wrong. And Ishka is, of course, not helpful there. Um, and I, I find that interesting because it kind of helps to emphasize again the idea that this society is only being held together by thread, you know? That this rule, this absolute adherence to the idea of the internecine contract is the only thing that prevents their society from completely dissolving. I've related to the, the Ferengi before to the Sith, that is to say the Sith Empire over in Star Wars The Old Republic. And the more I see of them, the more it seems to be true. Because over there, there are certain tenets, and those tenets you simply do not break. You know, inheritance of the emperor, um, following their council. You know, there's certain lines you don't cross, basically. And if you cross them, you get screwed instantly into the ground. In fact, you usually get killed. So, you know, them doing this to Quark as an example makes sense. In fact, it's actually, this is going to sound funny, it is once again an indicative and the episode doesn't say this out loud, of how much Brunt is, shall we say, uh, unsuitable for the role of power amongst the Ferengi society, that he is willing to violate this core tenant 
just to claim a little more power for himself. He offers Quark his thing back when the Nagus and his, his mother, both of them are effectively running the Empire, say no. Think about that for a minute. Either way, thankfully, Quark does get his license back so he can get back to deal. And, oh, don't forget, after the weapons deal thing, his debts are gone, so he's basically had an etch-a-sketch situation. Congratulations, Quark. Hopefully the next time you interact with the rest of the Ferengi, it won't be in a dress. <sighs> I really don't remember if that's the next one or not. I know it's, it's quite a while from now. It's in Season 6. Either way, for now, I'll see you next time.